Good morning, or, or good afternoon, or whatever it is right now. Glad that you're here with us today. Uh, thanks to the worship team, Pastor Keith, that last song is, just does a great job. It's going to tie in right where we're leading today, so I thank them for that. Uh, I haven't got to do this in a while, so I uh, may be a new face to some of you. I want to take a quick second and introduce myself. Uh, I'm Mark. I'm one of the associate pastors here at the church. I get to spend most of my time working with the youth here at the church, and I love doing that, but occasionally I get to come here and get to do this. Uh, I'm thankful that Eric uh, sort of shared uh, the opportunity to be up here today and uh, look forward to opening God's word with you. But before we get started, would you just bow your heads and pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, time has been on our mind a lot today, trying to figure out what time to go to bed and what time to wake up and what time to get to church. Time can overwhelm us at, at, at times, God, and uh, I'm thankful that you are in control of time, that that, that is not our job that you orchestrate time, you know the beginning and the end. He says you hold time in your hands. God, you are not bound by it in the ways that we are. So thank you that you are in control and that we're not. Uh, I can have trouble enough figuring out what time to set my alarm for, God, and yet you control all of human history. Uh, so we thank you for your protection and your love for us. Thank you for your son Jesus that you sent that made it possible for us to gather together here today. So we ask your blessing on this time together. Open your word. Uh, open it into our hearts uh, so that we would be able to live it out. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who watched uh, World Series this past week? Where are my baseball fans? Okay. There was like nine of you. That's like six more than I expected. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big baseball fan. I, I was enjoying uh, the World Series and, and all the games leading up to it. But if you watched this week, if you watched on Tuesday, Game 6, there was something pretty interesting that occurred there's something pretty interesting that occurred. Uh, this is a young man. His name is Jordano Ventura, and he's a pitcher for the Kansas City Royals. He was the starting pitcher in game six. And if you look closely on his hat, you'll notice that he has something written there. It says RIP and then the, the initials OT and a number, number 18. Uh, this was a tribute to his friend Oscar Tavares, who had passed away a week ago last Sunday uh, in a car accident in his native Dominican Republic. And so uh, Yordando had met him. They, they came from the same country. Uh, they, they sort of passed each other's paths in the, in the minor league baseball and said they'd spent time at each other's house. So they, they had developed a friendship. And so this is two days after the passing of his friend, and, and Yordano decided to write those initials, R-I-P and O-T, on his hat. Uh, it was a, it's a touching tribute from one friend uh, to another. Um, he pitched amazing. Uh, he pitched seven innings of, um, of scoreless baseball, led the, helped lead the team into a decisive game seven, which they would unfortunately lose the following evening. But we have no way of knowing to what degree this, this tribute actually sort of fueled him. But, but his intention was to take the memory of his friend, the, the relationship that he had, sort of the shared experiences and shared upbringings, and let that be a fuel and a motivator for his performance. He wanted the memory of his friend to, to help him excel to the peak of his performance ability. And I, th I think it's interesting, actually, now that, that hat and his glove, uh, he had something written on her out on their way to Cooperstown. They're, they're being commemorated in the Hall of Fame uh, for this. Uh, but as Christians, we should really be able to relate to something like this because we have a friendship and a relationship that should fuel us in all that we do. In remembrance of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we should be 
motivated and encouraged in our behaviors and in our attitudes, both individually and corporately. We should be looking back in remembrance of what Jesus has done, and that remembrance should motivate and fuel our day-to-day lives. Today we're going to look at Philippians 2, if you have your Bible and you want to turn there. Uh, We're going to start in verse 12. And this is actually a continuation uh, of a sermon uh, that I got to preach almost three years ago now on, on Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. So uh, those of you that were waiting patiently, you're welcome. Um, and if you can't remember back three years or you weren't in Fairbanks three years ago, uh, you're lucky. Uh, Pastor Eric preached this exact same passage uh, about 10 months ago. Um, it was essentially the same sermon, only his had more hunting stories and bad cat jokes, but by and large, they, they lined up nicely. And before The reason I point to that, before we get into the passage that we're actually going to look at, we need to look back at the passage before at Philippians 5 through 11, because everything that we're going to look at today in verses 12 through 18 is built off of the theological truths that Paul lays out in verses 5 through 11. Paul teaches the theology first. And then he helps the Philippians and us apply those theological truths in our daily lives. And that's the section that we're going to specifically focus on today. Uh, When we jump into a passage and and just right in the middle of of Philippians here, it's important that we give context. Otherwise, Pastor Eric will never let me preach again. I agree with his statement that good Bible reading is always done within context. And so I want to make sure we understand what's going on here in Philippians Paul's writing to a church in Philippi. It's a church that he had previously planted and started about 12 years ago uh, before the writing of this letter. Uh, It's a church that he had a strong personal connection to. Um, You get the feeling that Paul, through the grace of God, had a loving relationship with sort of everyone that that he encountered. But it's, it's apparent from this letter that he had a special place in his heart for the Philippians, and and that comes through in his writing. This is not a a broadly written blog post to everyone. This was a personal letter to some close dear friends that he wanted to encourage and help along. And another piece of context that's helpful in understanding this is Paul wrote this from prison. Um, When we discuss the part about joy that we're going to get to at the end of the message, don't let the context and the irony be lost on you. Uh, that the instructor in this section is giving these encouragements, these exhortations to joyfulness from prison with the threat of execution sort of hanging over his head. Let's see, starting in verse 5, let's see what Paul says to the Philippians. Verse 5, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Paul takes on a difficult task in a few verses. He tries to sum up the life of Jesus Christ. He tells us that Jesus laid aside his rights to deity, that Jesus set an example of true humility that all of us are to follow, that Jesus was obedient to the will of the Father, obedient even to the point of death, and that Jesus now reigns with God and someday every knee will bow and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. So Paul writes this to the Philippians. He's not writing it to them as new information. This wasn't an update. These are core truths that that all of the different things that he would have been teaching them over the years would have been built on. He would have taught them this before. But Paul wanted to make sure that they had the theological background for where he was about to go with them in this letter. To have a firm understanding of who Jesus was and what Jesus had done for them. He also expressed concern that these theological truths ought to manifest themselves in their lives as well. It wasn't just something that they needed to know in their head or in their heart, but that this was something that needed to then show up in their relationships to others, show up on the outside. So everything that we're going to look at today should be a response to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus that Paul describes in Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11. So now as we move on to our passage, pick up with me in verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation." Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So what we're seeing here is In remembrance of of what Paul has just written, Philippians 2, verse 5 through 11, we should be diligent. Verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So he starts with a therefore. This is how we know that he's pointing back to what he has just written. And he tells them, continue to obey like you used to when I was there. Continue to obey even though I am gone. One thing that's true, our true character is revealed when we think that nobody is watching, right? Parents, you want to know what your kids are really like? Leave them alone for a while. Want to know what they're really like? Leave town and let them house sit. You'll find out their true character, whether for better or for worse. Have you ever watched your kids when they don't know that you're looking? It's one of my favorite things to do uh, with our girls is to kind of walk quietly to where I can see them and hear them and, and they don't know that I'm there watching and I get to see their interactions. And it's okay, it's not stalking when it's your kids. It's called parenting. If you do that with other people, that's creepy. Uh, how they act when they don't know that I'm watching tells me a lot about who they really are and how they behave, and how they treat each other. And and that is a very revealing situation when we're not being watched. And so Paul's saying the same thing to the Philippians. He says, your true understanding of, of who Jesus is and what he did for you will be more visible in you now that I'm gone. Your lives will tell the story. 
Your lives are the test of your understanding of Jesus. And Paul warns them not to stop just because he's no longer there to watch them. Uh, Now we sort of move on to a phrase that has caused plenty of confusion uh, and offered a plethora of opinions. Uh, The phrase is, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling in verse 12. And it can be easy to confuse what Paul is trying to say here. The temptation might be to hear this as sort of self-help Christianity. Your salvation is up to you. It's in your hands. Make sure you don't mess it up. But it's important to look at what this verse doesn't say. It does not say work for your salvation. It does not say work towards your salvation. It does not say work at your salvation. It very specifically says work out your salvation. You can't work out your salvation unless God has already worked it into you. It is God who does that. And Paul is telling them this, that you do play an active role in your spiritual growth. By telling them to continue to work out their salvation, he could have also told them, continue to grow in your maturity. He's telling them, you've come a long way in your faith. Don't take your foot off the gas now. Don't be content to stay where you are spiritually. It's true that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, but that doesn't mean that we're supposed to be. I've been a fan of the phrase, I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not where I used to be. Uh, You look back and see where God has brought you and let that be an encouragement to you, but you also understand that there's never a point where we should be done growing. Even Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, later says in Philippians that he hasn't been made perfect yet. He's not done growing. Our spiritual life should never flatline. Paul is warning the Philippians not to get complacent. So my challenge to you guys, are you actively taking steps in your life to allow spiritual growth. Now notice I didn't say to cause spiritual growth, but to allow spiritual growth. And we'll follow it up in in the next verse, verse 13, that it's God that causes spiritual growth, but are you putting yourself in situations to allow him room to operate? Are you continuing to work out your salvation and take steps towards your growth? I ask questions. Are you spending time in your Bible? I think back a couple weeks, Ken Birding was up here, and he challenged us on our Bible literacy. Uh, There's a class on Bible literacy taught second hour Sunday school. Pastor Adam, you should check out. Are you spending time in prayer? Are you sharing your lives with other believers? Are you living in community? Are you involved in a small group? Are you serving others? Following up on Pastor Eric's sermon series for the last several weeks, are you being generous? Now, none of these things by themselves cause spiritual growth, but they are active ways that you can allow God to work spiritually within you to cause growth, to continue to work out your salvation. We're told to do this uh, with fear and trembling. Uh, Another way that this is phrased in Psalms 2 verse 11, it says, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. So this isn't a new idea. But fear and trembling doesn't mean quivering in the corner. Fear and trembling means a seriousness, a reverence, a healthy fear, a healthy respect. And and something that came to my mind uh, of what it meant to sort of do something with fear and trembling and have a healthy fear and healthy respect of something. Um, I used to work construction uh, before I became a pastor. You know, me and Jesus were kind of like that. Um, And one of the days that I disliked most each year was the day that windows got delivered. 
And if you've ever had a truckload of windows pull up, the flatbed pulls up and there's this big bundle of however many windows are going to the house, maybe it's 15, and they're all palleted together. And it's this big, heavy piece of just, there's just glass everywhere. And somebody has to get this big, heavy thing of windows off the forklift and onto the, or off the truck and onto the ground. And can I tell you, that's terrifying. Have you bought a window lately? Apparently they're like gold-plated or something, but it, this, this pallet of windows could be anywhere from ten dollars to $20,000, and it's glass. And I just remember those days of sometimes it was my turn to go and do it, and it was something that I approached with fear and trembling. I wasn't scared, but I, I had a very healthy respect for what I was about to do. I, I took it very seriously. I, I paid attention to the details. I had a plan of what I wanted to do. And I think that's the idea that Paul is trying to give us when it comes to our spiritual growth. He's not telling us that our spiritual growth should be motivated by a, a, a quivering fear of God, but he's telling us to recognize the seriousness of our spiritual life and to not approach it flippantly or casually. Paul tells us to work hard toward spiritual growth in our lives in verse 12. And you can almost picture Paul reading what he just wrote and asking himself, how would Saul have read this same passage that just told me to work out and work diligently on my spiritual life? And so then I think he goes on and pens verse 13 to give it the appropriate context. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So yes, you have an active role in your spiritual growth, but you also have a passive role in your spiritual growth. The same Paul who tells us in verse 12 to work actively toward spiritual growth is the same Paul who wrote Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God is the one who is in the business of changing hearts and changing lives. He's at work within us. He's on our work. He's working on our inside that shows up on our outside. God works on our will and on our heart before we're ever able to act it out. And this helps fight against the pride that can swell up about our own spirituality. At the end of the day, we recognize with humility that any success that we have at doing what God commands comes from God himself. Paul commands them to be diligent and not be content in their faith, recognizing that God is the driving force behind anything that they accomplish. So he moves on. In remembrance of, of what he already laid out in Philippians, five through, Philippians 2, 5 through 10, we should also be unified. Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So the first step towards unity is stop whining. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Um, I wish that we could just take this verse out of context and throw it around uh, wherever we want, to whatever situations that we want. Uh, I've threatened the students that I work with that this is going to become the official youth group verse. Um, but when you take a road trip with 30 uh, teenagers, you need a verse like this to hold on to. 
this is more than a verse that mom and dad are supposed to yell at the kids in the back of the minivan when they're arguing and fighting over who spilled the Cheerios or, or who's touching who. And this is more than a Christian call to kumbaya that we all hold hands and get along for the sake of getting along. Unity is a significant theme throughout the entire book of Philippians. Earlier, chapter 2, Paul says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of others. Paul, in chapter 4, urges Judea and Syntyche to get along, which is kind of a bummer for them to get called out in Scripture that's been read by millions of people for 2,000s of years. And he even has to urge other people to come alongside and help them that it's gotten that bad. So Paul sees the dangers, even within the Philippian church, of disunity. He's not just about unity for the sake of unity. He's about unity for a purpose. Unity that allows the advancement of the gospel. Unity that is based in the memory of who Jesus is and what he has done. A lack of unity within a church will rob it of its effectiveness. Instead of spending our time and effort impacting those around us, our time and effort is spent inward, quieting, grumbling, and arguing. How can a church tell others about Jesus' humility when we can't check our own egos at the door to get along? Unity is so critical because it robs the effectiveness out of the church. And Paul says the first step to that is to stop whining. Verse 15, he tells them, learn from the past. You may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. He's using language here that is supposed to take us back to Deuteronomy and to the Israelites. Uh, The Israelites can get sort of a hard rap in the Old Testament. And and we got to see this as a church uh, last year as we went through the entire book of Exodus. And this theme of, of grumbling and arguing continually bubbled up and continually repeated itself. Have you ever been around someone that complained just constantly. And if they didn't have something to complain about, they probably found a way to complain that there was nothing to complain about. It's hard to be around those people. It's frustrating. You get a feeling that that may have been at times what it was like to be around the Israelites. And and Paul's not taking kind of just a pot shot at the Israelites because he can. But he wants the, the people in Philippians to look back at a historical example and see how it derailed what God was trying to do with the nation of Israel. This lack of unity was poison. A lack of unity continues to poison far too many churches uh, in the world today. If you want to just do a refresher course on how dangerous grumbling and arguing it is, I challenge, start in Exodus and read through Joshua, and you will see its crippling effects on an entire country. Paul is saying, be unified. Learn from the negative examples of the past. Don't complain and argue because people are watching. Verse 15, then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. We live in a world where unity is the exception to the rule. Would you agree with that? Sometimes as Americans, we even take pride in the fact that we can't be unified and we just call it the democratic process. If we can get 55% of people to agree on anything, we consider that a landslide in unity. Paul tells us as Christians, as the church, that we have a tremendous opportunity to stand out and to stand out for the right reasons. 
Jesus says something very similar to this during the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you guys are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You want to shine like a star? You want to stand out for the right reasons? Lay aside your rights and your wants for the good of others. Imitate the humility of Christ that, that's pictured at the beginning of Philippians 2 and do it in a way that unifies others for the sake of, a, of the gospel. That stands out. That glows to a world around us that can't agree on anything. Paul's encouraging the Philippians and us to be unified, to learn from the negative examples of the past. He says, don't complain or argue because the world is watching us and they want to see if we're different and they'll notice if we are. Last thing that we see in remembrance of Jesus and what he has done for us, Paul reminds us that we should be joyful. Picking up in verse 16, Then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Joy, another theme that pops up repeatedly in Philippians. In the NIV translation, uh, joy shows up five times in Philippians and the word rejoice shows up another six. Uh, This theme kind of peaks in the beginning of chapter four where Paul tells them, rejoice in the Lord always, I tell you again, rejoice. Now he's not just randomly running around high-fiving people. That's not what he's going for here. That's not the goal of this instruction to be joyful. Paul even writes this as as he looks forward to his own possible death. He says, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, anticipating his possible future execution, he can rejoice because the Philippians are working hard towards the advancement of the gospel. In, In our world, in our perspective, we can often see death as the end, as game over. You've lost. No more continues. Paul takes a, a different approach. He looks and sees the strengthening of the Philippian church and the advancement of the gospel. And he says, besides that, whatever's happening is irrelevant. And he sets an example for us that it's about God. It's not about us. Paul's not rooting to die. That's not his, his goal. But he recognizes that if that's the path that God has laid out for him and it advances the gospel, that he trusts what God is doing. And he can celebrate in that. Later on in Philippians and 4, Paul tells us that he's learned to be content regardless of his situation. And you've got to keep in mind, this is prison Paul telling us that, that, that he can be content regardless of his situation. Paul has the mindset that it isn't about your own individual circumstances or situations. It's about what God's doing that's most important. It, it can be very natural for us to try and tie our joy and happiness to what's going on in our lives to link it directly to our circumstances and our situations, to, to see it ever changing and moving as our situations change and move. But when our joy, like Paul's, is tied to what God is doing, when it's tied to who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's currently doing through the church, through people's lives as he's rescuing sinners, then our joy can remain steady because God is at work and God is continuing to change people. Because of that, when our joy is tied to that, we can remain joyful. 
I read a commentary from a man named Preston Taylor, and he said this, as Christians, happiness is our heritage. The abundant life is our legacy. The Christian faith should not produce frowning saints. We should be joyful because we see what God's doing even though we live in a totally messed up world. We can see where he's moving, where he's acting, and and how he's changing people. So sort of the, the big question for today is, what's the outcome in your life when you read a passage like Philippians 2, verse 5 through 11, that talk about who Jesus is and what he's done? How does that impact us and how does that show up in our lives? Because it's not just to go into our head, it's to go into our hearts and it's to show up in our lives. Does who Jesus is and what he's done change you? Does it cause you to live differently? Does it cause you to work diligently? Does it cause you to change and set aside your own desire and your own agendas? Does it cause you to set aside the ebb and flow of happiness tied to your own life and and instead grab onto the joy that is a happiness found in the work of Jesus? Because Paul tells us that it should. These aren't just random advice. This is random advice tied back to who God is, who Jesus is, and what they've done. I mean, the God who is alive and at work within us changes in a way that those verses impact us as they should. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your humble sacrifice. Because without that part, none of this matters. But Jesus, you obeyed the will of your Father, and you came and you lived a perfect life, and you laid it down so that we could come to faith in you. Thank you for drawing us, us to you that we don't, we don't bring ourselves to you, God, that, that you offer yourselves to us and that we simply accept it. Heavenly Father, let the, the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done permeate through us and show up in every area of our lives. Heavenly Father, we ask you to help us do this because we cannot do it without you. In Jesus' name, amen.